Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Jasmine and I'm here with my co-host Reese. Hi Reese. Hi, how you doing this fine Saturday morning? Good. It's afternoon for me. Like we're recording this on the 1st of July, um, this uh, Saturday. And you're listening to this for the first time on Sunday, July the 2nd. So beginning of Independence Day weekend. And I want to say um, happy belated birthday to my Aunt Valerie. Uh, cancer season is upon us. I hope you're having a good time and taking it easy. And it's also today, July the 1st, is our friend Emily Scott's birthday. So happy Yay. birthday, Emily. Happy birthday. Hope you're enjoying your time. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, you know, having a birthday so close to the four. You know how some people are, like, born close to Christmas and yeah. they believe that the yeah. lights and stuff are for them until someone busts their bubble? Yep, she's like, the fireworks are for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess you can, you know, why not? Right, you, you deserve well claim girl. It. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm doing all right. We have some bad air in New York again. But it seems to be calming down, you know, with the pollution and everything. This is horrible. But honestly, it's kind of interesting that this is just happening for the first time. I was just kind of thinking about that as we was talking about this earlier, that this, you know, that this is now a thing. But, I, you know, as they say, we are killing the earth every day. So, you know, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> and for this week's episode, for the local news, I'll be talking about NYPD's first female police commissioner uh, ending her tenure. For the national news, we'll be talking about um, police in Chicago dropping the charges against um, a mother and her teenage son in a shooting. For world news, I'll be talking about protests following the police killing of Nael M. in France, a teenager of North African descent. And for the good news story, we'll be discussing Yale granting degrees to inmates. So I will get started with our local news. Uh, This information comes from thegothamist.com. I'm going to read most of it out, but some things have been omitted for for the sake of time. The title of the article is NYPD's first female commissioner ends her tenure asking, what do we take away from this calling by Samantha Max? And the article was published on June the 30th. Friday marked NYPD commissioner Keyshawn Sewell's last day after 18 months leading the police department. The mayor has not yet picked a replacement, but first deputy commissioner Edward Caban will run the department in the interim. The commissioner abruptly announced her resignation in a message to department employees earlier this month. The memo did not cite reasons for her departure or her plans for the future. Sewell was the first woman and the first black woman appointed to the top post in the nation's largest police department. She went from leading a 350 member detective unit in the Nassau County Police Department to running a department with almost 34,000 uniformed officers and 17,000 civilian employees, according to NYPD data. 
Sewell spent her last day praising officers at a promotion ceremony and thanking them for their unyielding commitment to the protection of our city. You will never be just a number to me, she said. On your shoulders, you carry the weight of a safe city. After Sewell shook hands with the promoted employees and handed them their certificates, a short video tribute played and the crowd gave her a standing ovation. Sewell, typically stoic and straight-faced, dabbed tears from her eyes. Then she laughed and motioned for everyone to stop applauding. She broke the glass ceiling, said mayoral advisor Ingrid Lewis-Martin, before handing Sewell a bouquet of flowers. She, she made the way for young girls to know that anything is possible. In her year and a half at the helm, Sewell oversaw drops and homicides and shootings following a spike in violent crime during the pandemic. Police statistics show that homicides are down more than 14% compared to two years ago, while shootings have decreased more than 30%. Some other crimes, including robberies and assaults, increased during the same period. At the mayor's urging, Sewell brought back the NYPD's controversial anti-crime units, now called neighborhood safety teams, to look for guns in areas with high rates of violence. A recent report found those teams often make illegal stops. She also worked with Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul to send more officers into the subways amid widespread fears of transit crime. Several policing experts told Gothamist that Sewell struggled to set her own agenda with a former NYPD captain in the mayor's office. Mayor Eric Adams has denied claims that he and Deputy Mayor for Public Safety Philip Banks meddled in the commissioner's decisions. Sewell has not spoken publicly about what prompted her decision to leave the department, and Gothamist's attempts to reach her have been unsuccessful. But at Friday's promotion ceremony, the outgoing commissioner hinted at some questions she's asking herself as she leaves the NYPD. What do we give back? What do we take away from this calling, this mission, this responsibility, she said? And what positive changes do we leave behind? And um, this is a separate excerpt that's from a city, the city.nyc article written by Yoav Gonin. Uh, the day before the Gothamist article on June 29th, and it's about um, speculation on why Keyshant left. Uh, so just this is a brief excerpt. In the days after the Civilian Complaint Review Board recommended that the department's highest-ranking uniform officer be docked up to 10 vacation days for abusing his authority, Mayor Eric Adams reached out to Police Commissioner Keyshant Sewell and in a conversation put pressure on her not to impose any discipline, according to a confidant of Sewell's familiar with her thinking during her last weeks on the job. The source said that Adams' message was underscored by top-level administration officials who contacted Sewell in subsequent days and was also bolstered by the mayor's comments at two press conferences at which he praised Chief of Department Jeffrey Madry and his actions while also stating that the decision about whether to discipline him was up to Sewell. Despite the intense campaign, Sewell decided that Madry should be docked the 10 days for an incident 18 months earlier, where Madry showed up late at night at the 73rd Precinct Station House in Brownsville, Brooklyn, 
and ordered the dropping of a gun charge against a retired cop. Um, so yeah, like I picked this because, um, we did discuss that case where, you know, there was a police officer who brandished his weapon at some, a couple of children. They were like 12, they were 12, 13 and 14. They threw a basketball allegedly like at a surveillance camera or something like that. And there was a police officer, a high ranking officer who brandished his gun at them and was arrested for having done so. And then Madri stepped in and tried to like undo the arrest. So Keyshawn disciplined this person. And then, you know, after that, now she's resigning. So um, I would be surprised if that didn't have anything to do with her decision. But yeah, that's why this stuck out to me. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that before you even said that last part that, you know, this mayor is just on a fucking rampage during this time with all of this madness that he's been doing. And, you know, I always thought it was conflictual, um, his dealings with the police before he got in office for various reasons. But this is the type of stuff that, you know, she not saying anything now, maybe later on, whatever, she will reveal some of the things that she went through. But, you know, it's scary to think about what will happen afterwards. And I think, you know, in a lot of times situations like this where you see people just resign without, you know, saying anything from somewhat of a prestigious career, you really have to think about the consequences of their actions. You know, what will she do after this? You know, I don't know if she's aged enough to retire or whatever her situation is. But the reality is, like, where do you go from this situation? You know, what's next after this? So the level of pressure she must have felt um is worth mentioning because i'm sure it it took her a long time and a hard time to get to that post and i think it's important when women are in positions of leadership and they for some reason step down for them from them um to acknowledge that the the path to get there took them so long like the pressure is one thing but what other things could she be concerned about that she just felt like she could not solve This kind of, this story kind of made me think about like the limits of thinking that you're going to change things from the inside. She's black. Mayor uh, Mayor Adams is black. Madri, like the police officer that um, Sewell had sanctioned, he's also a black man. You know, just because you're a part of a minority group or an oppressed group doesn't mean that you can't be a part of a system that is harmful. And the Gothamist article mentioned that, you know, one of these groups that she helped to revive is known for harassing young black men, like young black and Hispanic men. So that's what the machine and the system is built to do. So even if you do try to step out a little bit where she did something as simple as saying like, yes, this person should should lose some vacation days because he sprang someone out of a jail cell who had, you know, very clearly threatened children with a weapon for throwing a ball. That's not, she didn't, you know, say like, oh, he's gonna, you know, spend forever in jail or something like losing some vacation days. And then this is what happens. Like you get intimidated, allegedly, or it looks like out of your job, like, you know, you're, 
you're only going to be able to last for but so long in these types of institutions if you don't follow along in lockstep with what they're trying to do. So I don't know. It, it does seem like she probably had a lot of conflict within herself and butting heads with Adams. And Yeah, we spend so much time in our careers. It's important to acknowledge like your own mental health and your own ability to feel comfortable you know, with what you do and what side of history you will be on from the choices you make, especially within an industry like this. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just hope whoever replaces her post is someone of equity and integrity who will hold that post and do it right by the people that need it the most. What type of person do you think is, is likely to get put in? I definitely think it's going to be a man um, just because like, you know, I think that that's what probably what they want just because that's the way that industry works. Um, And it's probably going to be someone with a longstanding history. um, Someone who is probably recommended by Adams and, and, and made marks during his tenure. Um, And someone who will err on the side of that. You know, I hate to say it blatantly, but probably a dirty cop who it has the cleanest possible record on paper, but will do whatever they ask them to do. And that's the type of people that, you know, unfortunately get those jobs and hold those posts so long until they die so they can keep that sort of boys club in commission the way it has been. Yeah, man, I gotta say like, well, I would never want to be a cop anyway, like just regardless. I don't think I would ever want to be a firefighter either. But like the FDNY and the NYPD are definitely two workplaces where I would just imagine as a woman would be nightmares. Like just, I couldn't even imagine like the amount of misogyny and like undermining that you would have to deal with. And like, I I do kind of think that more likely than not even if it is someone who checks off certain boxes as far as their identity like probably I think you're right it will be someone who is known for you know the police can never be wrong like it's okay to make excuses and let them get off even if they have been shown to abuse their authority because, you know, it starts at the top and the mayor is definitely from his remarks and the way he behaves. I don't know if you saw how he was talking to that elderly um, woman who's a tenants rights activist, like the way he he had like an outburst at her. Someone who's like, you can never question me. I'm never wrong and all of this other stuff. Like I'm above the law. Like that's his attitude. And I'm pretty sure he's going to put someone in this role that falls in line with that so yeah I'm pretty sure you're right about that and you know him intimidating you know we don't know the actual that she was intimidated outside of her role but the fact that she's not saying much is enough you know so unfortunately in situations like this we need to um, assume the obvious I guess so you are listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn And for our first musical break, this is Tears Dry on Their Own by Amy Winehouse. We'll be right back. All I can ever be to you is the darkness that we know and this regret I got accustomed to. 
once you watched the ride when we were at our height, waiting for you in the hotel at night. I knew I had him at my match, but every moment we get snatched, I don't know why I got so attached. It's my responsibility. You don't own nothing to me But to walk away I have no capacity He walks away The sun goes down He takes the day Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And here's Reese with our national news story. Thank you. All right. So this story comes from the Chicago Sun-Times. The author is Matthew Hendricks. The title is Chicago Cops Falsely Arrested Mom, 14-Year-Old Son, and Shooting at a Hot Dog Stand. Lawsuit claims after murder charges are dropped. A lawsuit accusing Chicago police of false arrest has been filed a day after murder charges were dropped against a mother and her 14-year-old son in the shooting of a man who attacked her at a Southside hot dog stand. Everything I worked for, everything I worked hard for has been tarnished, Carlisha Hood said of her arrest at a news conference Tuesday at an attorney's law office in Bronzeville. The lawsuit claims Hood was falsely arrested and maliciously prosecuted, causing her to suffer emotional distress. It seeks more than $50,000 in damages. The suit says police sought charges against Hood for which they know, which they knew there were no probable cause, saying video footage of the shooting completely escapaded Kalisha Hood. While the suit contends the arrest was without legal justification, it doesn't address the fact that police sought and received approval for the charges from the Cooks County State Attorney's Office. Hood sobbed after giving a statement, and her attorney said she would take no questions during the news conference. Hood, 35, had been standing in line for food at a Maxwell Street Express at 11,656 South Halstead Street on June 18th, when she became involved in an argument with Brown, 32. Prosecutor said she... Sorry, prosecutor said when she was charged. Prosecutor said surveillance video shows Brown punching Hood repeatedly in the head before her 14-year-old son enters the restaurant and shoots Brown. 
Her son continued firing as Brown ran into a parking lot while being pursued by the teen and his mother, according to prosecutors. Hoods was accused of urging her son to keep shooting Brown and to kill him. She also allegedly told her son to shoot Brown's girlfriend, who allegedly had been egging Brown on during the confrontation. Hood and her son left and returned home, prosecutors said. Judge Barbara Dawkins set Hood's bail for $3 million at the hearing last week, where Hood faced charges of first-degree murder and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Hood's son was also charged with murder in juvenile court, as well as weapons violations. But on Monday, prosecutors announced they were dropping the charges against Hood and her son, citing emerging evidence in the case. Prosecutors did not specify what that evidence was, but the announcement came days after a video apparently recorded by a bystander began circulating on social media. Defense attorney Ari Williams declined to say why Hood left the scene of the shooting and went home instead of waiting for the police to arrive. There's video of this. So we don't have to get into great detail, Williams said. Attorney Brandon, attorney Brandon Brown, who filed the lawsuit, told reporters, what we don't want to do is have a nuanced legal discussion here at a press conference. Hood and her attorneys repeatedly thanked state attorney Kim Fox for dropping the charges, but they declined to say whether Fox was personally involved in the decision and would not address her office's decision to file charges initially. A spokeswoman for the state's attorney office declined to answer questions about Fox's role in this decision. Women better hope there's a video. Mark Lewis, director of holistic legal services at a law nonprofit Lawndale Christian Legal Center, said prosecutors acted too quickly to bring charges against the mother and her son. The legal center was researching the case to potentially represent the teen when Lewis said their attorneys reviewed video of the incident. This woman experienced a brutal attack, Lewis said. Both her and her son were charged too rapidly when they should have. there should have been further investigation. Lewis was also critical of the bail Hood was given, calling it the same as no bail because Hood wasn't able to pay the 300000 to be released. The same judge in October set bail at $2 million for a pregnant woman facing first-degree murder charges in a similar case. So I'm going to stop right there. Um, the article continues to talk a little bit more about how um, the bail was determined and how both women were given these really aggressive bails without really having an investigation of what happened to them. Um, but, you know, long story short, what really triggers me about this is that this woman was brutally publicly attacked and she became the she became she she was never the victim is the problem here. Um, you know, the, the situation with her son is interesting. You know, I was having this discussion with a friend of mine about like, how did he even know how to use the gun? But I'm sorry, she was licensed and card carrying um, in Chicago. So she did not have the gun illegally. But honestly, in the day and age we live in, if I had a teenage kid living in my house in Chirac, I think I would make sure he knew how a gun worked too. And that's not to promote gun violence, but it's just kind of the reality of the world that they live in. Yeah, I did see the video and it was shocking. You know, I I don't even know like what the argument was or could have been for that man to cock back and bust her in the head like that. Like that alone could have killed her. 
He was way too comfortable, right? Like that was, and I'm like, and that's not the first time he put his hands on somebody, definitely not a woman. You're not gonna tell me that he absolutely. didn't have a history of being violent like that and he got away with it and thought nobody was ever gonna and none of those bystanders there could have stepped in. They weren't there alone. It was other grown adults in there that could have de-escalated it. But what happened? Everyone like once somebody comes with a gun. Yeah, you didn't even see like the manager of the business or anything like that, like try to come in and try to calm the problem down. You know, um, you just all of a sudden see him go from, you know, 10 to 100 real fast because he was never calm speaking to her. What could they possibly be arguing about at a hot dog stand? It was really disheartening to even watch it. And from the teen's perspective, you know, this is another thing, you know, just like I think a parent would say, I'm not a parent, but just like a parent would say, if you see your child being hurt, you don't have like logistics in mind. You are going to react to save your child no matter what. You're going to do what you need to do. Can you imagine seeing your mother being beat up by some random man in a hot dog stand? I would react violently too, probably. Yeah, I feel like if it had been shown, like proven that she literally told him to kill someone, I, I doubt that they would have dropped the charges. So whatever that came out, they don't think she was at fault. But it's a sad reminder that it's like when you're a black person, especially a black woman, it's like you said, you never get to be the victim. You know, you're only recognized as a victim if it's your body in a bag. Any other outcome, you're the bad guy. Yeah. And another thing that is, you know, um, I was listening to another podcast talk about this story and something that they brought up was that social media was the only reason that that coverage was leveraged to get them out. You know, you know, we, we rag on social media being so destructive at times, but in this specific case, that video going viral was one of the reasons this woman got those charges dropped because she, you know, she allegedly left the restaurant and went home. I read another article on it that said that the next day her and her son went to the police station and turned themselves in, or at least to report what had happened. So there was really no other video, you know, no video has surfaced from the hot dog restaurant or the parking lot. The video was taken by a bystander's phone and that leveraging that video, everybody sharing it was what really got her out of jail. So, you know, in cases like this, um, is definitely important for us to remember, like, it, you know, it's not bystanders ability to deescalate, share information is crucial. You know, that see something, say something shit that they say in New York all the time is very important. Um, and some other trainings that I've done for Title IX and different things like that, you know, just somebody intervening can really change the outcome of a situation. Um, in this case, it literally got her and her son out of jail. So, you know, uh, take, be that as it may, sometimes it's not the most horrible thing, but I definitely think that that's something important. You know, people sharing and sharing this video is what really brought some justice to this case so far. Yeah, man, because it's very, this he says, she said, if somebody in their mind feels like you as a woman, you should just take it, they'll say whatever. 
and you know flip and reverse the details to for what they say to the police and there's so many different examples in recent memory of had it not been for somebody recording the the official narrative that the police put out is completely different from what you see with your own eyes and you know i don't like the culture of recording everything but it definitely does it has a place and it shows you that you know these things are not a figment of your imagination like violence against women is real there are men out here that will buck up at you and go off on you over foolishness like for nothing and they are comfortable thinking that they'll get away with it and it's like you know what one day you're going to get the right one and, you know, you should keep that in mind before you start messing with people. Because that, I couldn't believe the way he hit that lady. It's like, at a hot dog spot? He he had no chill. Like, you know, what like, the, uh-uh. he had no chill. Like, no chill whatsoever. And, you know, I don't want to encourage people to watch violence. But I think it's important for us to be aware that this is what people be dealing with. You know, the reality of our lives. Like, you should always be on alert, especially as a woman of what can happen to you. And it's scary because that means that, you know, just vocalizing your emotions or how you feeling in the moment, you can end up in a situation like this. And as always, I want to also think about this kid, this 14 year old now got a body on his hands, you know, it's, it's insane. Like his life now, that's, that's the story of his life. That's the trauma he got to deal with. And he's 14 years old. You don't know what's going to happen to this kid after this. You don't know, you know, what he's going to deal with. Let's just hope that, you know, he can get some kind of help to deal with this trauma because this is not some shit that happens every day and no kid should have to defend their parent in this way. Yeah, absolutely not. It is, that is traumatic, you know, no matter if it's self-defense or whatever, like taking someone's life is not a small thing. And I definitely hope he gets some intensive therapy and is surrounded by a lot of support, but at, at least we can be grateful for now. He's not going to be going into the system because that would really be. With a murder case at 14. <sighs> and they and don't mess around in Chicago with how they, you know, with you're a child, but you'll get brought up as if you're an adult and all this other mess. So I'm, I'm glad that at least he's escaping that, that the mother is free and, well, prayers up for the, you know, both families that was affected by this, even though that display of bullshit is horrible to even think. Because the reality, he had no chill. And it, when people react like that over, you know, confrontation, like, it's just really scary to think what they do all the time in life. You know, like his regular way of handling problems probably was very much like what we saw on that video. So you know, I'm never justifying somebody getting murdered, but the reality is who knows who else have been a victim of his rage. And I just, you know, I'm just really praying for this mother and her son who went through this traumatic experience, um, being locked up for however many days and then had to be reunited over this trauma that they went through together. You know, at the press conference she did, she could barely keep it together as she was trying to, you know, tell her, tell the people at the press conference, you know, why she is, has this lawsuit, but just for her to even come up with the courage to have this lawsuit. And, um, you know, for her, her son, you know, 50 grand ain't, ain't enough to deal with the lifelong trauma that they're going to have to heal from. So, you know, I just hope that she does get justice and that they do get help. Um, 
and that there is no further action from this, right? Because a lot of times people will let the smoke clear and before you know it, it's all type of other violence, payback and bullshit like that. So just, you know, keeping True, this woman yeah. in her prayers. Yeah, definitely. Cause you just never know how far it's going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, just on a, on another note, it's a damn shame and a disgrace that people didn't step in before it escalated to that level of violence. Cause as soon as it was getting loud, somebody should have stepped in and stopped it. It shouldn't have even gotten to the point where he hit her. Exactly. But, you know, it's like, it was enough grown men in the vicinity that could have been like, Hey man, like you need, you know, let's chill something or Anything you can get at all. a group together to do it and be like, Hey, but that's not what happened. And unfortunately we see the results. So, you know, bystander intervention is crucial because we don't want to see these things blow up and escalate to the point where now somebody's dead, other people traumatized and for what? And we got to care more about each other, you know, within the community, because, you know, I hate reporting stories about any kind of crime, but it hit different when you, when the people look like us, you know, I just always imagine like that being somebody in my family on either side of the argument, you know, it's just really hard to believe that these people were standing there, even the people within the business, you do get paid to run a business and having that level of intervention from even you would have been helpful in this situation. Hey, let's like take this outside or let's chill out or, you know, let's just calm down. Anything at all could have stopped somebody from being murdered and traumatized. So for now, like you said, prayers up to this woman and her son. And, you know, I do feel it's never easy to lose a loved one, even if they were a challenging person. So just a sad situation all around. And people in Chicago, come on, y'all. Put a little bit more love in them hot dogs, man. Oh, Lord. <laughs> All right. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is No More Rain by Angie Stone. We'll be right back.
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our world news story, this is an article from Al Jazeera. Uh, It was printed, well, it was published on June the 29th, and the title is France Police Shooting, Protests Spread Over Killing of Nael. Macron races to quell anger after a second night of riots over the fatal shooting of a teenager of North African descent. And I'm going to read most of this, but not every single thing for the sake of time. The French police officer who killed a 17-year-old in a Paris suburb was on Thursday placed under formal investigation for voluntary homicide as the government raced to ease public anger and protesters planned a tribute march. The deadly shooting of Nael M., the teenager of North African descent, during a traffic stop in Nanterre on Tuesday has triggered two nights of rioting across France prompting President Emmanuel Macron to convene a crisis meeting with senior ministers. Gerald Darmanin, interior minister, said 40,000 police, including 5,000 in Paris, will be deployed on Thursday evening to deal with any further protests. While Macron has described the killing as inexcusable, he has condemned the sometimes violent unrest and pleaded for calm as justice takes its course. The incident has reignited debate in France about police tactics amid long-standing criticism from rights groups about the treatment of people in low-income suburbs, particularly ethnic minorities. Nael was pulled over by two police officers for breaking traffic rules while driving a rented yellow Mercedes. Police initially reported that an officer had shot at the teenager because he was driving his car at him. But this version of events was contradicted by a video circulating on social media. That footage shows the two police officers standing by the side of the stationary car, meaning it was not moving, with one pointing a weapon at the driver. A voice is heard saying, you are going to get a bullet in the head. The police officer then appears to fire as the car abruptly drives off. The 38-year-old policeman filmed firing the lethal shot was taken into custody afterwards. Civil rights activist Yasser Luati told Al Jazeera, what does not surprise us at all is the speed at which the talking points of the police were immediately relayed by the mainstream media in France. Thank God there was a video that emerged online contradicting the official version of the police pushing the government to react. At the same time, we should not forget to note how Macron was quick to react to the outburst of violence last night. He called the anger unjustifiable. The police is shielded from accountability in France. There is no transparency. French governments are haunted by the prospect of a repeat of the 2005 riots sparked by the death of two black boys during a police chase. Those protests resulted in about 10,000 cars being burned and 6,000 people arrested. 
Damana on Thursday deplored another night of unbearable violence against symbols of the Republic, adding the 150 arrests had been made across the country as town halls, schools, and police stations were set on fire or attacked. Overnight, cars and bins were torched in parts of Paris and nationwide. Protesters launched fireworks at riot police who fired flashball projectiles to disperse the angry crowds. A tramway was also set alight in a Paris suburb. Niall's mother posted a video on TikTok calling for the tribute march on Thursday for her son, her only child. Come all, I beg you, she said, we will all be there. Their lawyer, Yassine Bouzrou, said he would file an additional complaint for false testimony over the allegation that Nael had tried to run over the police officer. Last year, a record 13 people were killed in France after refusing to stop for police traffic checks. In 2017, officers were handed greater power to use their weapons. So I'm going to start reading the Al Jazeera article there, but I wanted to jump over to this excerpt from Reuters, which explains um, what happened in 2017 with this law. Uh, this information was um, written for, in Reuters by Juliette Jabkiro and Leili Forudi. And it says, the highway code in France says that a driver can be stopped by police to have his driving documents checked at any time without any visible violation of the law. Since 2017, French law has allowed police to use their firearms in five different scenarios. One, when their life or physical safety or the life of another individual is put at risk. Two, when a place or, or people under their protection come under attack. Three, when they are unable to prevent someone likely to threaten their life or physical safety or other people's from fleeing. Four, when they are unable to stop a vehicle whose driver has ignored an order to stop and whose occupants are likely to pose a risk to their life or physical safety or to other people's. Five, if there is reason to believe it will prevent murder or attempted murder. Fabien Jobar, a researcher at the Sociological Research Center for Law and Penal Institutions, had previously told Reuters there were ambiguities in the law. Quote, this law confused very clear text stating that a police officer cannot use their firearm unless it is to protect their life or the life of another, Jobar said. Um, so I did not um, watch the video. I just saw stills of the video. I just, I don't know. I don't want to see someone getting shot. Um, but very troubling situation unfolding in France right now. And I can understand like where the anger is coming from. Yeah, absolutely. France has been going through a lot this past like two years. Um, just in general, it's just been a lot of just things happening and uh, I don't remember them ever having this type of response to any uh, police activity before in my lifetime. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, but um, it's never, never, never a good thing to hear about a, a kid being killed by the cops. I did watch the video. Um, it was, it was scary because, you know, the press will tell you what they want you to hear, but in the same context, 
it's kind of hard to tell really what happened if you do watch the video just because like the video that I seen showed the car had like pulled off um as well maybe he was shot and then pulled off I'm not exactly sure I didn't double watch it or anything like that but um you know anytime the people are in an uprising you know some shit in the game to be honest and it just really does um it really does make you think like you know how police uh police police in other places right i think in america we're kind of used to unfortunately um de facto bullshit with them um but across the nation in the world you know it's you know law enforcement has always not been on the right side of the argument for the most part i mean we maybe we don't hear enough stories about police doing the right thing but in this specific case people in an uprising um you know i'm sure there's more information we're going to learn about the specific police department and their shady dealings um but it is sad anytime someone a youth you know is in this incident and and the community that surrounds them have to deal with the repercussions and pick up the pieces afterwards. It was striking to me to read about this, that 2017 law, because that really is super vague. And like, I feel like that's, that's basically, they can shoot you over anything. You know, it's one thing to be like, if, okay, the person is attacking me or they have a weapon and they lunged at me, but all of these, if this, then that it's like, even in the case of um, what happened with Niall, like there was the person lied and said that the person, that the boy tried to drive over him first and then he shot. And then the video comes out. It's like, that's not what happened at all. But it's really, um, you know, that expansion of their ability to shoot people. It, it really struck me. Um, because I I wouldn't think that it would be so loose in France. I don't know why I would assume that, but I guess I think of us here in the U.S. as being like the kings of, you know, police being trigger happy. I just kind of think a lot of other places in the West are not as bad, but seeing it written out in black and white like that, it's like, damn, like, you know, so it's and I think Macron has also been condemning a lot social media and was talking about trying to take certain images down and was blaming it. And I'm like, look, this is like the story we talked about last time. Had it not been for the video, people would right. know what actually happened, you know, because as we can see, they will say whatever. Like they know that like, oh, just say you felt threatened and you'll get off. Right. And- you see it happen here every day. I fear yeah. my life and a person walking away from, running away from you. How are you afraid? Yeah, you know, I mean. But, you know, they can say that and it's like the magic words and it's supposed to make everything go away. And it's like having the recording is the only thing you have to kind of push back at all and to get awareness that, hey, this is what they're doing. And historically, you know, around the world, policing has always been fucking crooked and messed up. You know, like I just remember like when I was in grad school, you know, I I learned so much about the concept of policing from an international perspective that, you know, depending on the country and the history of that country, just like here, you know, policing started as a way to, you know, punish fucking slaves or whatever. The reality is in other countries, it's just as targeted towards uh, communities of color and communities that are not the dominant 
community. And in some places like in Africa, you know, it's even worse because in those situations, a lot of this shit, there, there is no track record. There's no file. You know, people just get killed and murdered down in the streets and that's the end of it. You know, it just, they don't have the ability to leverage any power against the authority. A lot of people, um, for many reasons, you know, disparity and all type of other shit that's unfair. And if you go to speak about it, you're in even more danger, you know? So the reality is that policing as a whole, you know, I'm not going to say I don't see any fucking purpose to it because obviously you would want protection. Of course, you need to have structure in society. But in the same context, the whole con- concept behind it seems that it is it's only to keep the order of the biggest gang in the world. Yeah, it's really, it's all about maintaining the social hierarchy and keeping certain people in line. But it, the Trojan horse is that it's about safety and all of that. And it's, it's a facade, you know. And the other thing that bothers me is like the way it happens here and it's, it's happening over there. It's like this, the emphasis on condemning the reaction to the murder is always so much more extreme than the murder itself. Where it's like, why isn't the message that in order to prevent these riots from happening, the police need to stop doing what they're doing. That's never the solution. It's just to condemn the people who are rioting afterwards. And really, you know, what's that Martin Luther King quote? Like the, a riot is the voice of the unheard or something like that's what, that's the resort that you have. Cause what else are you going to do? The law is going to be, you know, rigged in the favor of the state sanctioned violence, you know, they're the only people allowed to be violent legally. So there's no real other way for you to fight back, but to, you know, go out and take the streets. But instead of the people in charge being like, look, if we don't want this to happen, then we need to make sure that the police know that there's a swift, strict consequence for ever doing this it's almost like the opposite happens where it's like, give them more money, put more police out, have them get more violent. And it just kind of, I don't know, it just, some of these images coming out with the fires and everything and so many cops being on the street and the way Macron is talking, like I, I think it looks like it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Definitely a story to follow and just to see how it's being handled in another country. Um, You know, will it be whitewashed? Will it be just kind of, you know, them condemning people for speaking out, you know, because freedom of speech is, is subjective depending on where you are in this world. And it's, yeah, it's really scary to know that this is something that happens all the time. I swear it happens so much more here than we even know about it certain cities just have a way of hiding shit so much better than others. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, very sad for this young man's family, like 17 is no time to die. You know, someone twice his age took his life over some BS. It's really very, very sad. Uh, All right. Well, with that being said, let me hop into this good news before we run out of time, people. Um, this story comes from the Associated Press. Um, the article was published on June 9th and let's see here. Sorry. The author is Pat Eaton Rob. 
Um, and the title is Yale University of New Haven Partnership Celebrates First Degrees Awarded to Inmates. That's right, people. Yale. Suffield, Connecticut. Marcus Harvin has two identification cards. One shows he's a fellow at Yale College, which is helping him on track towards law school. The other shows he is a parolee just released from a maximum security McDougal Walker Correction Institution after spending six years in prison for a highly publicized drunken driving incident that left two young children injured. Harvin, who hopes to become a defense attorney someday, was back inside the prison Friday for a graduation ceremony at which he received his associate's degree in general studies from the University of New Haven. He and six other men make up the first class to matriculate from the partnership between UNH's prison education program and the Yale Prison Education Initiative. That name Yale means so much because I'm from New Haven and to be able to study at Yale and begin studying in prison is unheard of, said Harvin. People even think I'm lying sometimes, so I have to show them my jail ID and my Yale ID. The Yale program was launched in 2016 by alum Zelda Rowland. It was based on a similar program she was a part of while working at Westland University. Yale partnered, partnered with UNH in 2021, giving the student inmates a path of two and four year college degrees. The program, which offers classes at McDougal Walker and the Federal Women's Prison in Danbury, is now part of a consortium that includes 15 schools and prison systems across the country. We believe that this is a transformative program and it has the potential to make a generational impact, said Roland, who serves as the director of the Yale UNH partnership. We believe that we're transforming not just individual students' lives, but also the institutions that work that we work in, both the universities and the correctional center. Governor Ned Lemon served as the graduation speaker Friday, echoing that theme and expressing hope that the graduates will pave a way for others. So yeah, um, the story continues, um, but it is one, one more fact before we wrap it up. Just over 20% of inmates receive some form of higher education in prison, UNH officials said, and studies have shown that those who do are far less likely to have behavioral problems in prison and far less likely to commit crimes once they are released. So definitely a wave of uh, positivity um, coming out of this program. There are other programs, I think, across the country, but not at these prestigious institutions like Yale. Um, I know that uh, there is some sort of connection program at the college that I work for, but I'm not sure if they're granting degrees. But in the same context, this is the type of things that really turns people's lives around. Um, and it's good to see, you know, people uh, achieving uh, things that they never thought that they could. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, they call them correctional facilities and all of this, but it's like, what kind of correction is really going on? Like if there's no opportunity to like better yourself or work on something positive while you're in there. So I think that's, you know, for as long as there are prisons, you know, I, I hope one day we won't need them or that we have a, an alternative to this, like for when people are violent or whatever, but it's definitely great that these inmates are able to leave with something you know, and it would be great if they could also get some extra support once they're out so that they right. can really put that to to use. Yeah. Um, 
because as you were saying, you know, there is a lot of discrimination if you do, even if you served your time or whatever, like one, it can be such a stain on your record trying to, you know, reintegrate. So hopefully that they, they expand it beyond just getting the diploma, but, you know, right. helping to place people and other supports that they might need to get back into regular life. Yeah. And shout out to these, you know, language is important, these student inmates, because that does make a difference in how one sees themselves as well as how others interpret their experience. So, um, yeah, shout out to the graduates um, from this program and across the country. And it's never too late. You know, if you really have an ambition, you really want to. There are ways you just got to you got to go for it. Right. Absolutely. Well, we've done a show and we'd like to thank you for listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more community-based Brooklyn radio. And for our last track, this is Stevie Wonder with Living for the City. Have a good rest of your weekend, everybody, and have a safe week. Bye-bye. Bye. A boy's born in hot that Mississippi Surrounded by for walls that ain't so pretty His parents give him love and affection To keep him strong, moving in the right direction Living just enough, just enough for the city His father works some days for 14 hours And you can bet Yeah.